based upon our emotional life. It's pretty clear that the world of our feelings, the inner world of our emotions, is a world that exerts a pretty powerful force upon the whole of our lives. It often also feels, for many people, I think, like a world which is quite difficult to access, quite difficult to investigate, quite difficult to bring clarity within. If we reflect upon the times in our lives where there's the greatest joy, the experiences of happiness, of love, of closeness, of laughter, of celebration, it's clear that all of these are times and experiences that are rooted in our feelings, our emotions. If we also reflect upon the times of and the experiences of greatest sorrow in our lives, the experiences of loss or grief or anger, or the experiences of hatred, of alienation, of loneliness, of rejection, those experiences and times are also rooted in our feelings. If we're aware of those moments in our lives when we feel moved to reach out to other people, to touch other people with compassion, with empathy, with care, with sensitivity, those very movements to connect are movements that are rooted in our feelings and our capacity to feel. And equally, there's times in our lives when we feel really compelled to disconnect, to move away from other people with aversion or judgment or anger or rejection. Those movements are exactly the same way rooted in our capacity to feel. It is also true that our emotions, one of the reasons they feel difficult to access is that they are often very mixed, aren't they? We can feel very fond of someone, respect them and admire them and at the same time feel jealous of them or resentful of them. We can care very much for another person and that feeling of care can also be mixed up at times with feelings of aversion or resistance or, or judgment. Our feelings govern and dictate not only our relationships to others, but equally our feelings govern and often do dictate the changing relationship which we have with ourselves. We see times in our lives when we relate to ourselves with respect and care, where there's a sense of appreciation, feelings of acceptance. And yet equally there can be times when our relationship to ourselves goes through a dramatic shift, where it can be condemning or judgmental, where our inner relationship can be flavored by aversion or contempt or disappointment. One thing that is often very certain about our feelings is that they have a remarkable power to govern the moment. 
And sometimes our surveys startle us with their intensity. It's not unusual to feel that we get ambushed by an emotion, that we can be totally calm and seemingly out of nowhere there can come some great surge or wave of emotion. Sometimes our experience is one of feeling overwhelmed, of simply being lost, of being submerged within an emotion to the degree where it often feels that it's difficult to find a way out. And sometimes we we have a sense maybe even that it's not possible to find a way out and that we just have to kind of wait it out or, or let it find its own momentum of fading away. Feelings are powerful, emotions are powerful. They have a tremendous creative power to bring closeness and intimacy. And they can also have a really devastating power, can't they? In the way in which they can alienate us from others, in the way that they can bring in their wake such feelings of regret and remorse and, oh, you know, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I act that way? Our emotions are probably also the place in our lives where we see so much of the past repeating itself, isn't it? Often the way it plays where we see, you know, our childhoods, our, our histories, the way that we've been emotionally related to, how often we see that being recycled in the emotions that we experience in relationship to ourselves and to others. Um, you know, sometimes some of you, our parents, have had the experience of finding yourself suddenly in relationship to your children, emotionally reacting exactly the same way that you were reacted to as a child. And sometimes it's really horrible news, you know. <laughs> you know, I spent so many years trying to be free of that, and there's my father, or there's my mother, you know. And we see often the way our emotions go so far back and how deeply they root, are rooted often are in our very early, very early childhood experiences, in a way almost that it's impossible to trace the beginning of some of our emotions, that they seem to have begun almost at a time before we were ever born. You know, we inherited them, it seems. You know, and who knows who inherited them before us, you know. Perhaps we come from a whole lineage of, you know, aversive types or a whole lineage of authoritarian types, you know, and that we're continuing to keep this kind of heritage alive in some way. And there's often actually quite a sense of, um, there can be quite a sense of despair in that, you know, and ugh. Disappointment, and actually, there can also be an equally powerful sense of motivation in that. You know, that there is a point where actually this kind of lineage needs to end. You know, that somebody needs to overthrow the king, so to speak. You know, there needs to be an inner coup where we say, enough, 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 you know. And then that motivational part is often really very important. It's certainly much more helpful than the despair response, <laughs> which basically leads us just stuck, 
Sometimes I feel in Cinematic America actually in such subtle ways, in such quiet ways, that we almost kind of dismiss them, or perhaps they're even so familiar to us that, you know, we're kind of institutionalized in them, or we no longer really pay attention to them or consider them worthy of attention, except, of course, that we continue to experience the consequences. In the Buddhist tradition, as uh, Fred already mentioned one evening, no separation is actually made between mind and heart. There is one word, chitta, chitta, which really describes consciousness, consciousness which holds this inner tapestry of feeling, thought, complexity, but that they are always intertwined. As the Buddha said, feeling, perception, and consciousness are always co-joined. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. These are kind of the sort of, we might say the three pillars of consciousness, of heart, of mind. Feeling, perception, consciousness. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. As we explore here our own consciousness in meditation, which is what we do, we explore our consciousness in each moment, and we see the many changes that our consciousness goes through in a single day or in a single hour, I think we really do begin to get a very deep sense of appreciation for how very artificial any division is between mind and heart. In the Dhammapada, one way that that's expressed is the Buddha said, the mind is the forerunner of all things. We could equally say the heart is the forerunner of all things. And it goes on to say, we are what we think, or we are what we feel. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, our feelings, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and sorrow will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure heart. And happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. Before we act, before we speak, before we move, before we think, we feel. The choices we make and the words we speak and the words we leave unspoken the directions we pursue, the actions we reject. For any of these to happen, for any of these to occur, first we feel. And how often are we aware of this most significant and essential aspect of consciousness? It is always present. You know, the other, you know, when Fred spoke about the other sense doors that arise and pass, seeing arises and passes, hearing arises and passes, body sensations arise and pass, thoughts arise and pass, tastes arise and pass, smells arise and pass, 
and they all impact on consciousness in terms of feeling. Our capacity for feeling is always awake. It is always present with us. Now, often when we speak kind of conventionally about feeling or think about feeling, we often think of it in terms of emotion. And we use these words almost interchangeably, don't we? Feeling and emotion, we think of them as being the same things. And often when we think of emotion, we think of emotion in much more kind of dramatic or intense terms. For example, we say, I know when I'm happy, I know when I'm depressed, I know when I'm excited, I know when I'm angry, I know when I'm frustrated. The list is endless. And when we reflect or or think about emotions, we usually, of course, don't think of emotions as just being feelings that arise and pass, that appear and disappear, that are born and fade away. Instead, often we regard or we think of emotions as being something which are large, they're powerful, they're dynamic. And of course, some of the emotions that we do experience in our lives, then we also have value judgments about them. We say some of the emotions we experience, we regard them as positive, as expanding, as uplifting, as exhilarating. Some of them we might even label as being spiritual. And then, of course, there's another whole range of emotions that we have a different value system for, that we regard as being threatening or overwhelming or devastating in some ways. And partially because of that value system, of course, there's there's emotions in our lives and our inner world that we find ourselves actively seeking and pursuing and trying to find or trying to hold on to or trying to repeat. And there are other emotions that we find ourselves really making an effort to avoid or we even fear them because of their power and because of the way that they perhaps, you know, wreak devastation in our minds. Also with emotions, we often regard emotions as kind of states of experience, almost as if they just happen, almost as if they kind of arrive, you know, ready-made anger, you know, or sadness or excitement, as if they almost arrive ready-made, fully constructed, preordained, Um, predetermined in some way. Also sometimes we we think of emotions as being caused by circumstances or people or events outside of ourselves. Don't we? We say, oh, that makes me really angry. Or that makes me really sad. Or that makes me so frustrated. Or that person really gets up my nose and I get so peeved. You know, they make me so peeved. Increasingly, I think, in our world, out of recognizing, too, the power of emotion and the consequences of emotion, I think also emotion has even gained a more special status and value. You know, there's a lot of workshops you can do, a lot of books you can read that speak about, you know, getting in touch 
with your feelings, getting in touch with your emotions, about how to open to pain, how to open our hearts, almost speaking as if emotion is some kind of separate compartment in our consciousness. Um, sometimes even regarded as kind of being, you know, sacred and, and special and different. You know, some people say I'm an intellectual type, as if it's a crime, you know, and they have to become a more feeling type, you know, because then they're going to be on a spiritual path or, you know, a better path anyway. Sometimes we almost uh, also tend to feel that when we compartmentalize emotion into this kind of special category, apart from everything else, often we also may even feel like we need some sort of expert advice, you know, or special technique in order to get in touch with our emotions. Now, I think it's, it is sometimes, it does sometimes happen also that it happens because emotion feels very inaccessible. I mean, I think this is the reason why a lot of this happens. But I think it's helpful to look at the ways that we often actually approach emotion and approach being present with emotion, often in a very static and conditioned way. Especially if we have emotions that we regard as being negative, almost automatically we put this prescription on them or this idea in front of them that there's something we have to resolve. There's something we have to maybe fix. And often the way, the very conditioned way, I think, or conventional way that we have in mind when we talk about fixing or resolving an emotion, we think often in terms of catharsis. You know, I need to be able to express my emotions. You know, I'm emotionally constipated, so I need to know how to be free with my emotions. I need to know how to express my emotions. And almost assuming that if we know how to express our emotions, that that's going to mean that we know how to be more true to our feelings. Now, this usually happens, of course, around emotions that we regard as negative or charged. These thoughts usually don't arise around emotions that we regard as being positive or uplifting or spiritual. This belief around the need to express them, because otherwise, sometimes you feel, well, if I don't express my emotions, I'm either going to be untrue to my feelings, or they're going to remain unresolved within me. Now, some of us, you know, I think especially in more some European cultures possibly, um, you know, we come from a background where, you know, emotion has been actually often regarded as being some sort of weakness or imperfection and, you know, perhaps found in our own histories, found ourselves being caught in these unenviable extremes where either we've, you know, either just been overwhelmed by emotions, uh, become a victim or felt powerless, or else, you know, we come more from the culture of, of using willpower and suppression and ignoring emotions in order to be strong, you know, the whole stiff upper lip culture. And we've probably discovered, actually, that neither of these positions of either being overwhelmed or of you know, ignoring and appearing unaffected by emotions have been particularly helpful to us. Neither of those positions are particularly helpful for us. 
So sometimes I think because of that, we feel, well, if I'm not going to be overwhelmed and I'm not going to be suppressive, I'm going to learn to, to be what we call be free with my emotions, learn how to express them. And sometimes expression is actually almost even regarded as kind of an emotional middle path between suppression and being overwhelmed. I think it is, you know, we can go through actually catharsis, you know, exploding, being free and expressing our emotions really quite a number of times in our life. I think sometimes we do come to understand that catharsis doesn't necessarily free us in any profound way from the knots of emotional entanglement. Actually, sometimes what catharsis and expression does simply is it gets rid of the tension that builds up around emotion. It gets rid of some of the contractedness and, and, and the, the tension and, and, and anxiety charge that gets built up around emotion. You know, sometimes you know, you've been really angry with someone, you finally get to shout at them and you feel so much better afterwards, you know, for a very brief period of time. Um, until the next time you get angry with the same person, you know, or with somebody else, and then you find yourself isn't it, in the same cycle again. You know, and again we manage to express it, and we feel this great sense of relief. Unfortunately, it tends to be very temporary, and then we find ourselves returning, perhaps, to those same inclinations of sadness or depression or aversion or anger over and over again. Personally, I feel it's a, somewhat erroneous, conclusion or belief system to feel that, you know, the capacity to express emotion necessarily makes us more free. I don't see why it makes us any more free than the capacity to suppress emotion. I mean, countless people in our world actually have absolutely no problem whatsoever in, in expressing emotion. People who've never heard of the Dharma, you know, are often a lot better off in terms of expressing emotion. You know, during the last time you were ever in a traffic jam, and, you know, and found all everybody around you emoting wildly, you know, having no problem whatsoever, you know, in kicking their cars and, you know, banging their steering wheels and shouting abuse out the window. Free. We're free in our emotions. In a, even more in our culture, there seems to be almost kind of a, a kind of permission or, or virtue or license given to expressing rage. You know, there's all these kind of new forms of rage, which apparently are quite common, you know, there's road rage, there's supermarket rage, you know. <laughs> I've come across supermarket rage a number of times. Apparently there's lane rage, which is something that happens in swimming pools. You know, when you get lot swimmers and somebody doesn't go fast enough and they start kind of struggling with each other in the water and trying to drown each other. You know, free in their emotions, wonderfully free in their emotions. I suspect that after, you know, sometimes exploring these extremes of both expression and suppression, it probably does occur to us, just as it occurred to the Buddha, that there may be another way. <laughs> and there may actually be a wiser way that it would be helpful for us to discover. In Buddhist teaching, a tremendous um, emphasis is given to feelings both to development and to letting go. 
I mean, so much is spoken of about seeking for happiness, for well-being, for compassion, for empathy, for joy, for peace. They're all feelings we foster and nurture, loving-kindness, friendliness, warmth of heart. They're all feelings. There's an equal amount that is spoken about in terms of letting go, letting go of anger, letting go of hatred, letting go of greed, letting go of fear, letting go of craving. Equally, feelings. Nowhere is there a kind of speaking about searching for a sort of blessed neutrality. It is also true that emotions are not labelled. None of these feelings are labelled as either being bad or good. The way in which emotions are often spoken about is really based upon wisdom, really exploring and knowing those qualities of feeling within ourselves that truly do lead to happiness and well-being, to openness, to care, to compassion, to the end of suffering. And those are the feelings we develop. And also with wisdom and through our own experience, also really coming to be very honest about those feelings within ourselves that lead to conflict and confusion, that lead to separation and alienation, that lead to a lack of freedom and a lack of happiness. And these are the feelings that through understanding we learn to let go of, not because they're bad or wrong, not because one or the other is good, but upon this very simple basis that there is that which leads to suffering, and there is that that leads to the end of suffering. The mindfulness of feeling is the second of the foundations of mindfulness. It is very much at the heart of the meditative tradition. Yet, if you were to go in the library and search through all of the Buddhist texts and the Buddhist sutras and look through the indexes, you would be very hard-pressed to find the word emotion. That's interesting, isn't it? There is one mention that I found where the, um, it's, emotion is spoken of as something that we might feel if we were happening to visit the four major Buddhist pilgrimage spots. After Buddha's birth, enlightenment, first, first discourse and death. That that's what we might feel if we visit those places. Well, this is probably, most likely, going to be a very small part of our life. So we still have a whole range of feeling there that it's important for us to understand. There are thousands of references to feeling, but not to emotion. And not because, in, in Buddhist teaching, emotion is regarded as being unworthy of attention. And certainly not because in our practice we're somehow directing ourselves towards being indifferent or bereft of feeling. Emotion is not listed as a word simply because it is not regarded in this teaching and practice as a state. It's not regarded as a state of experience which is preformed or preordained in any way. But instead, immersion is seen as being a process, a fluid and unfolding process. 
which is comprised of a whole interwoven tapestry of different elements. So that there's no one thing that we can say that's an emotion. But instead, the interwoven tapestry of emotion includes our bodies and what happens in our bodies when we're in the process of feeling. It includes the feelings that arise in our hearts and minds of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. The process of emotion includes what happens in our minds and hearts through its thoughts and associations and memories. And all of this together is what we conventionally call an emotion. But sometimes what we call an emotion may actually be a concept, an image that we are imposing upon a fluid and unfolding process which cannot be limited to a concept. We can actually, I feel that this is more than just a good idea or some neat theory, you know. You can actually explore this in your own experience. The next time you say when you're sitting that you're bored, well, I would invite you to find it. I would invite you to find it. Is it in your big toe? Is your big toe bored? No, there's a sensation there. You know, are you your eyebrow bored? Do you find it there? Where, where do you find bored? Ah, it's a word. And it's a word we are using to describe a much bigger picture, but we take the word really seriously, don't we? We say, I'm bored, you know, I'm going to do something about this, you know, order up a juicy fantasy, you know, make something happen. On the basis of a word, the next time you sit and you say, I'm angry, well, dive beneath the concept a little bit and find out what that really means for you. You'll probably find beneath that word, actually, there's maybe a real lot that's happening in your body. And what's the flavor of that? You know, what's the flavor of that? Probably you've got a lot of unpleasant feelings. Unpleasant feelings. And notice how the unpleasant feelings then act like a kind of magnet, don't they, for thoughts. For thoughts, you know, you've got a magnet there, you've got a magnet for thoughts. And notice how thoughts in themselves act as a magnet for association. For example, the person beside you has a cold and they sniffle maybe, you know. So you're sitting there, of course, the composed, calm, equanimous yogi, and the person beside you has this chronic sniffle, you know. So, you know, after a little while of patience, and you've had quite enough of patience, you do aversion, you know. <laughs> when are they going to stop sniffling? You know, and you can feel it, can't you? You can feel it in your body. There's a certain energy that starts to happen with that. Often the body starts to just tighten a little, just tense if you're a little hot, you know waiting for the next sniffle to come. And then, of course, there comes the thoughts, doesn't it? Why are they doing that? You know, why don't they just have a good honk and get it over with? You know, why the end of sniffle, you know? And then, of course, the thoughts act as a little bit more of a magnet. You know, it happens to me every retreat, I get the sniffler. You know, never fails, I will get the sniffler on every retreat, you know. Isn't that just like the rest of my life? You know, oh, oh, so many bad 
bad things happened to me. And we go back to the playground when we were four years old and met our first bully, you know, and our failure in Boy Scouts. And then we've got school. And we see this whole world unfold. That's what we call anger. That's what we call anger. Now, isn't one word really a little limited <laughs> to describe that process? And yet, so often we actually take the word and label so seriously, don't we? You know, we say, I'm angry, I've got to do something about it. You know, we're tempted to knock that block off the sniffler, you know, or we're going to go stamping out the meditation room, you know, or we're going to do something with this. On the basis of really not exploring that word. And so really, in a way, the moment we have the label in some ways, it's, an, it's either, the label can be an invitation to connect and really understand what is going on, but very often the label is also an invitation to disconnect. Because the moment that we kind of find the word for what we're feeling in this whole process so convinced, uh, you know, so convinced by the word, of course then we start acting upon the word and we disconnect it actually, often disconnected from really exploring that inner process that is going on. If it is an emotion that we find difficult, you know, our first response is often, how do I get rid of it? How do I get rid of it? Because it's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's uncomfortable to feel imprisoned within that kind of contractedness. We think, how am I going to get rid of it? And that's, you know, the point where we feel like running wildly from the meditation room, screaming, packing our bags, you know, all that stuff. If it's an emotion that's delightful, of course, our reaction runs along a different track. And we think, oh, you know, how can I stay stuck in this? You know, how can I make this last longer? How can I keep it? And again, we get caught up, of course, in our own value system, which is another way of disconnecting. It's no surprise that these emotional states are so fascinating to us because they are so powerful and because they seem so complex. It's no surprise either that such attention is given in mindfulness practice to understanding the nature of feeling to understanding the nature of feeling. The Buddha said, what we feel, we perceive, what we perceive, we think about, and through thinking and dwelling, our thoughts proliferate into the past, into the present, into the future, and we construct a world for ourselves in that moment. The mind is the forerunner of all things. In mindfulness practice, we make no effort whatsoever to get rid of feeling. We make a great effort to be free of any imprisonment within feeling. No effort is made to close down our capacity to feel. Great effort is made to open our hearts to our capacity to feel with awareness. To nurture our capacity not only for love and for acceptance, for compassion, but equally our capacity to be clear and free within all feelings. It's certainly not the goal of meditation to get rid of feeling, but it, we might say one of the directions of meditation is to liberate feeling 
from the baggage of association and history and fear and holding. So that our hearts and minds truly open to be responsive and immediate and uncluttered. The Buddha often spoke of the great potential that lies within our capacity to feel. That feelings are not a problem, but feelings are a creative potential. They hold the potential to bring us closer to others and to ourselves. They hold the potential to heal. They hold the potential to gladden our hearts and to gladden the hearts of others. We are never actually imprisoned by feelings in themselves. Instead, where we get imprisoned is when the feelings that we experience are hijacked or overtaken by underlying tendencies. The underlying tendencies of aversion and ignorance and craving. And these underlying tendencies attach themselves to feeling. This is also something that is easy to see in our experience. It's not difficult. It's not a complicated theory. For example, we are all aware by this point that we are not actually in control of the feelings that arise within us in a moment-to-moment level simply because our hearts and bodies and minds are responsive to the impressions that we receive through the sense doors. Think of ourselves kind of like an open house. You know, we're an open house. The sense doors are always open at different times. We're not in control of what we receive, obviously. I mean, try to have a day where you have only good feelings. Try to have a day where you only have pleasant sensations. Try to have a day when you only have wonderful sights and good smells and neat thoughts. Delightful, uplifting thoughts. We see that our inner and outer world instead brings us instead a kaleidoscope of feeling, doesn't it? It brings us the unpleasant and it brings us the pleasant And it brings us that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. The Buddha actually wasn't very fond of using the word neutral because neutral is actually very different than either pleasant or unpleasant. Our imprisonment or liberation is not found in the pleasant, the unpleasant, or that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Our imprisonment or liberation is actually found in our responses and our relationships to those feelings that emerge. If we are unaware, the pleasant feeling is captured by the underlying tendency towards craving and wanting and clinging. Notice, you know, some people have get a trip going with the birds here, you know. And they have a value system there. Like the rooks should pack their bags and leave, and every, all the other birds should stay, you know? So we get the little bird, you know, the little twittering, sweet bird, you know, that sings its song outside the window. It comes and it goes. It's a pleasant feeling. It's a pleasant sound. It's a very pleasant sound. But 
it comes and it goes, except when it gets captured by the underlying tendency towards craving, wanting, and clinging. Oh, it should move in, you know? How do we get its nest inside, you know? Which I always had this sound. I should only have pleasant sounds. We do this not only with sounds, with thoughts, with body sensations, with sights, with sounds, with smells. See how it happens? Unaware, when we are unaware, the unpleasant feeling gets captured by the underlying tendency towards aversion, rejection, judgment, anger. Notice how that happens. A sensation in the knee, smell of garlic, thought about someone you don't like. Unaware how quickly that gets captured by the underlying tendency towards aversion. Now, the feelings which are neither pleasant nor unpleasant are actually the most interesting of all. They're the most interesting of all. The Buddha often said that these are the feelings that get captured by ignorance. Because notice how often when we have, you know, we're walking around, you know, there's nothing specially happening, how often then that immediately means disconnection. How it's dismissed as being unworthy. Or how often the feelings which are in that, we might say, more neutral space are almost like a springboard for craving. Something's missing. You know, nothing's happening. Nothing's going on. You know, something should be happening. And how that kind of craving arises then to make something generally in the realm of the pleasant happen. We need to, we can watch this, of course, every day and every moment of our lives here. That's what's so interesting about feeling. It's always available as, some, as something to be mindful of. Notice those movements, especially at the end of sitting. Those moments are so important. You know? Notice how often you get out from a sitting, you know, maybe you have good intention, you know, I'm going to go do some walking meditation. You arrive at the keyhole. How did I get there? <laughs> I'm not thirsty. The person in front of me was going there. Mm-hmm. There I am, drinking a cup of tea. What happened to my walking meditation? Mm-hmm. Those moments at the end of sittings are often really such precious moments for seeing how feeling arises. You know, we're just absolutely appalled what happened in our last sitting. Oh, I'm going to go read a book. Amen? The movement away, the movement towards. Noticing those movements in our day, to more, movement towards, movement away from, and then we find out either how imprisoned or how free we are within our feelings. Because those movement towards and movement away from, they are the beginning of our emotional process. At the beginning of our emotional process. And whether we're moving towards or whether we're moving away from, the process is actually so similar. It's so much the same. And Havel, you know the Czech, the Czech Havel? He wrote something about this, which is, so, I think, so wonderful. He says, hatred has much in common with desire. With both come a fixation upon others, dependence on them, and in fact, delegation of a piece of our own identity to them. The hater 
longs for the object of his hatred. Just as the desire of the wanter longs for the object of his or her desire. Isn't the process the same? Whether we hate or whether we want. Whether it's in the outer world or whether in it it's in the inner world. Notice how when we really dislike something within ourselves, how we become fixated, obsessed, dwelling, imprisoned. Notice when we really want something or desire something. We become equally obsessed, equally imprisoned. And it begins with that process of moving towards and moving away from. These are important moments to notice in our days, to notice when they happen, to know that these are the places we can become imprisoned. These are the moments we can also find a tremendous sense of freedom and the real fluidity of our own feeling, emotional processes. Sometimes we do that by actually learning to rest with such attentiveness actually within our bodies. Because our feelings really do impact upon our bodies. Whether they're the pleasant feelings, the unpleasant feelings, the movements towards, or the movements away from. Our bodies, we begin to see those feelings on a, such a simpler way rather than the complexity of our associations and where did they come from and where are they going, we see them in such a simpler way and we learn to touch those feelings with mindfulness, with presence, with awareness, with interest, with learning how to stay connected. And then our feelings really do become messengers of wisdom. We learn how to unburden our feelings from the weight of association, of history, of past. And then we are responsive and present. And if we consider, you know, what the roots are of true compassion, true loving kindness, true friendliness and warmth of heart, they're not rooted in, you know, liking or disliking. They're not rooted in the world of personal preference. They are rooted actually in that real capacity to be present, to feel deeply, to feel simply, and to respond to what is in the moment. So I would really encourage you in these days to really see the ways in which our emotions truly can be messengers of wisdom. The ways in which we can really find a very deep sense of liberation, a deep sense of freedom within our capacity to feel. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.